everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Thanks, guys! I'm so excited to be with you today. This is so fun. Um, Today, I get to share a tool with you for understanding how our ideas about God, our relationship and interactions with God, and our love for other people can mature through ages and stages of life. Zach asked me to share a little bit about my background with you so y'all know who I am. Um, This study of how people mature has actually been a lifelong passion for me. At the moment, I'm raising two kiddos, ages eight and 11, and so I get this front row seat to seeing those early stages where they're asking questions about God and they're gradually growing in their faith. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with heroism, with writing and reading stories about what takes people from being ordinary and moves them to the next level. And that actually catapulted me through my first two degrees, that study. And then I leveled up and hung out in the criminal justice world for a while where I got to see real life stories of how trauma blocks maturity and then how God gives people second chances even in the worst of scenarios. And now as a private practice counselor with 11,000 some hours of getting to watch people mature or not, I'm constantly curious about what is it that helps people get unstuck and become who God called them to be. In my own life, I've got four, over four decades now of watching God work on me and mature me as I grow. And because of various family history things and cultural experiences, I've studied so many denominations and attended quite a few which really allows me to zoom out and say, what is normative for maturity? And then what is particular to one group? So um, I hope by sharing one of the ways that I've learned how to think about how people mature, together today we can clarify where we're at, we can figure out why is it that Christians at different stages feel so different And then also figure out how do we love people who are not in our stage, who are at a very different place. So first, uh, well actually over the next few weeks, you're going to get to hear from a number of folks who are at different ages and stages. So I just get to do the overview today. I want us to notice together that when the Bible thinks about the point of our interaction with God, it doesn't identify one moment where we see the light and we pray a prayer and then we're in. Nor does it ask us to check boxes of a particular creed and then we've arrived. It's not even a matter of you need to attend church this many times or serve in this many places. What the Bible shows as maturity is a lifelong interaction with God over time where we gradually start resembling him and the way that he loves. That is the goal of faith. So this concept shows up throughout the Bible in multiple places, but I'm going to zone in on one where the Ephesians are asking the Apostle Paul, hey, how do I follow Christ? And this is what uh, Paul writes. 
God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain, all of us, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature personhood, grow up, right? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God wants us to be wise, not easily conned by people who say they're preaching the truth but actually just want power. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The goal of faith is that all y'all are like Christ. So what does faith look like as it matures? There's this guy named James Fowler. He's a pastor, uh, theologian, uh, researcher, professor, and he got obsessed with this question. So he became an expert on how people develop mentally, uh, cognitively, physically, morally, all of the lees, right? And then what he did is he interviewed 359 people, ages four to 70, different parts of the United States, black, white, male, female, uh, lots of denominations, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, agnostics, atheists, Jewish people. There were a few that he left out, but hey, it was a good start, right? And so as he was researching, what he found is that there are predictable stages where faith matures. And they kind of start in infancy, and they go through uh, late adulthood, and um, they, uh, yeah, is there a graph in here that I can point to? You got it? All right. So you see stage one, this red right here, and then the orange? Uh, Those are these early stages, and I'll go through those in a minute, but you can see that almost everybody matures out of those because it's just a matter of cognitive development and having more complicated experiences of the world. But what you see when we get to this light green right here, this stage three, a little less than one in four people are actually going to stay in stage three their whole lives. So at some point, maturity becomes a matter of choice. It's not automatic. And then what you see here, this little stage right here is pretty darn Christ-like. It's super rare. And when it happens, it happens kind of later in life. So just keep that in mind as we're going. So I want to go through these stages with you. And I want to use really concrete terms and objects so that people like me and you can get it in a concrete way. If you're a psychology nerd and you want to hit me up later for the technical terms, go ahead. As I'm going through this, I'm going to use some examples from my life, not because I think I've got it all together or I'm a particularly good or normative example. It's just that I know me, and sometimes it's good to stick with what you know. So this box is going to represent faith. And when I talk about faith, I don't mean just checking, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, I believe in the virgin birth. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the principles that we use to organize our lives, what we do with mystery, how do we figure things out. It's a felt sense faith. 
So if you can think of it that way, I'm going to use Christian terms, but if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're here to support a friend, maybe you're just checking out the claims of Jesus, my challenge to you is to see how this applies to you, because this research was also done on atheists and agnostics. Think about the communities that you've been part of, or the ways that the things that you trust in have changed over time. And so just starting with stage zero, stage zero is uh, ages birth to two, so yeah, he couldn't do interviews on these guys, right? Um, but basically, the idea at this stage is that the experiences that we have with the adults in our lives, they lay the foundation for whether or not God is going to feel like good news to us. And so... Uh, if your parents or the people who are taking care of you are present and responsive and kind, it's laying a neural network foundation for God to be good. If your parents are distant or abusive or harsh, it's so much harder to believe that God could be good. So parents, as you're putting up with those 3 a.m. tantrums and responding kindly to the meltdown in King Super's Isle 4, you are laying the foundation for the kingdom of God. Good job. <laughs> so what causes the transition to the next stage, it's just that kids are able to have more cognitive, complex experiences of the world. Um, and stage one, uh, I'm calling it mommy and magic. Because at this age, my gosh, kids' imaginations are wild. And so their faith consists of cobbling together stories from mom and dad, whatever the heck they heard in their family or maybe Sunday school. But then they're filling in the gaps with their wild imaginations, with whatever the heck this is, right? And they're also super concrete. They don't get context yet. It's like, right? So uh, if you ask a kid at this stage about their faith, they might say something like, well, God is super big and good, kind of like cotton candy in the sky. And he likes to give mommy and daddy snacks. He gives them crackers and juice at that long meeting thing on Sunday. Right? Half imagination, half something, right? Um, so parents at this stage, remember how concrete your kids are this is not the time to break down the theology of evil, right? This is the time to camp out on God's love and then to consistently ask them questions about what they are interpreting from what they've heard. Because if kids are developing negative or scary images at this age, that's really hard to break later on. So keep asking them, hey, how do you interpret that? What causes the transition to the next stage is that kids start being able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not. And so stage two, concrete stories and fairness, that comes along, you know, around age seven-ish. Now kids are able to learn from what they observe in their life. They're able to put the pieces together for themselves and they can tell the difference between what they observe and their imagination. They're also able to keep in mind a linear story. So if you ask a kid at this age, tell me about faith, they might say something like, well, God made the world and he did a good job and then the people messed it up and then Israel came along and they were kind of good, but mostly bad. And they had a really long time out in Babylon and then Jesus came along and he did better and then he died and if we believe in him, we go to heaven. 
stop, right? It's linear. They picked up some things along the way, but it's like they're in the stream of the story. They can't yet step out on the bank and think about it critically. So at this stage, I remember jumping on the bed with Jesus because somebody told me Jesus was my friend, and what I like to do is jump on the bed with my friends. So that's what we did, right? Matter of fact, it's very clear. Um, And so a lot of the stories at this stage focus on fairness. If I do good, I get rewarded. If I do bad, I get punished. It's kind of like a vending machine. You put in the stuff, you get the candy, right? Very concrete. Um, Occasionally, some adults stay in this stage. They have very black and white ideas about how the world works. And if you pressed in, they wouldn't be able to tell you why, right? Um, But for those who do transition, often what's happening is they're noticing a conflict between the uh, stories that they hear from different authority sources. Hey, mom, you say that God made the world, but at school I heard it's kind of made by chance. Which is it? Hey, dad, I heard about that tsunami that killed a lot of people. Were all those people bad? No? Well, then why did they die? And it starts getting them to step outside the stream of the story and ask some tougher questions. So that transitions to stage three. Now this one, belonging and conformity, this one comes along in middle school. And parents, you know in middle school, kids are starting to go, all right, how do I belong? What do I need to do to belong? And they're noticing people seeing them. What do I need to wear to fit in? So in some ways, it's kind of like joining the army. It's not just what, I, what do I believe, but what do I need to believe to belong? What are the idioms I need? Uh, what goal is our common goal? And at this stage, kids also, because they start being aware of how people see them, they become aware that God is a unique person who could also see them. And so sometimes faith can be a very personal, like here I have some uh, Jesus calling. Jesus could call me right up. He's my BFF. He's my co-pilot, right? A lot of those kind of evangelical sayings um, can come along at this stage because of that personal concept. Also, symbols at this stage are still pretty concrete. This is the body of Christ. It just is. It doesn't necessarily represent anything. This is the body of Christ. But they don't have the same level of concrete black and white that they did in the uh, previous stage. Now, stage three works super well for churches, corporations, armies, organizations. Why? because we're all in this together. We all have the same goal, rah, 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 right? And there can be a lot of confidence and sense of belonging when we have the same goal. The danger of stage three is that it can lead to us versus them. Anybody who doesn't quite agree, it's because they're disloyal or they're wrong, not, you know what, they might have some wisdom that I don't have. Maybe I need to think about that. So stage three, again, for one in four people is going to last through their lifetime. But for those who do transition, what often leads to that transition is some trouble. Now, 
Maybe some of you were in stage three communities at some point in your life, religious or not, where questioning was not cool. And for me, I was not, that was not my stage three community. Uh, my parents are very analytical. The university group that was kind of my stage three place was dedicated to intellectual analysis, Bible study, and racial reconciliation. And so, like many of them, we would go an hour and a half drive to Dorchester, south of Boston, to go to church with people who didn't look like us. And then I would also go down there to tutor once a week. But my roommates picked up on something. They were like, Jen, you keep doing this, but you're always complaining about it. You don't really seem to connect with the people. What's going on? And they were picking up that at that point in my life, this wasn't real for me. I was doing it because the group did it. It was a stage three thing to do. Now, transitioning out of stage three can often happen when an authority figure that people really trusted has a failing, a moral failing, maybe, or they reject the person. Maybe they were a Catholic under Vatican I, and then all of a sudden under Vatican II, all the rules changed, and now they don't know what the heck to believe anymore. It can also happen when we're having experiences with people that are super different, and we get in depth with that. Or it can happen if something really difficult goes on in our lives, and all of a sudden it just doesn't fit together anymore. We don't feel like we belong. And so when that happens, it can lead to the transition to stage four, which is distancing and debunking. Now in this place, um, all of a sudden, the group narrative doesn't work anymore. I don't even know what to believe anymore. After that happened, I just don't know what to do. None of it works. I gotta figure this thing out for myself. And so stage four starts really saying, I'm gonna trust my brain. I'm gonna trust my critical thinking. I wanna figure out what I really think, which is a good thing. And then, in stage four, people are also ready to start considering some different perspectives, right? Maybe I don't need to just see the world the same way that I did before. And as we become aware that our faith came out of a particular context, we start noticing, you know what? Maybe not everybody is starting from the same place, and maybe their differences are not just about the decisions they make. Maybe their cultural context and where they came from also has something to do with it. So at that stage, um, what can be great about it is the, these questions. What's hard about it is it's hard to be disconnected from your community. In my 20s, I went through a very traumatic season, um, and with the equipment that I had, the stage that I was in, the only way to stop the trauma cycle was to break a significant commitment. Now, my stage three self preached grace. I could have preached a lot of grace to you, but I had a felt sense that people who didn't keep their commitments, people who had moral failings, people who didn't have integrity, they were less than. So now that I was a commitment breaker, what did that mean about me? The church I was in at the time was super kind. They didn't all agree with me, but they accepted me. But I had broken my own standards. And I didn't know, for me, if I was okay. 
So then I had to figure out, do I really believe in grace? Does it really apply to me? What is it that I believe now that this has happened? What can, uh, so good things about stage four, critical thinking. You don't take things at face value. The dangers of stage four are that you can be pretty dismissive of everybody who's at stage three because they're not asking the same questions that you are, so what do they have to offer? What can lead to the transition out of stage four is, you guys, it's super hard to be debunking everything all the time. That's really exhausting. And we can start craving something that transcends all of those crazy questions. We want something that's real. Or maybe, as we have more experiences, we start realizing, you know what? I make mistakes too. I'm fallible too. It's not just that my stage three community was troubled. I am also troubled. So now what? Or maybe God gives us experiences that are so amazing that they actually just blow our questions out of the water. It's like, I think, despite all of my doubts, that there's something real and tangible to this. And that can lead to stage five, which is both and. In stage five, whatever emerges through the crucible of stage four, it's solid. There are still solid things that we can hold on to, but there's a lot more room for mystery. Questions are not so threatening. It's okay. We're a lot more open to listening to the Spirit guide us to things that are out of our comfort zone and maybe out of our community's comfort zone. And as we mature, we're a lot more ready to have God pour us out in the cause of love and justice for other people, maybe even people who aren't like us at all. But stage five does retain the desire for comfort, right? I still want self-preservation. I still want my life to be easy. So I'll only get poured out so far. In stage five also, we can hold on to both the symbols and rituals that we were part of and the ideas about what they represent. Both are okay. In stage five, I notice I'm so, it's so much easier for me to be in really close relationship and to study people who are super different than I am. It's not hard anymore. Also, uh, I notice that I don't expect to agree with everything that one church says, nor do I expect one church to be able to meet all my emotional needs. Nope, that is going to require the whole body of Christ, other places to serve, other places to listen and teach, other places to have direct community with God, other communities. So now coming to church becomes more of God how do you want me to show up and who do you want me to love rather than getting fed? But I'm very aware that I am still holding on to my comfort. I have a lot of areas where I'm still very selfish and I don't want to be poured out all the way, which is why I know I am not in stage six. What can cause the transition to stage six is as we go through life and we watch God come through for us in places that we never imagined he would, we build trust and eventually, we're more and more ready to trust God, even if he calls us into super hard places. 
And so for the folks that move into stage six, often this happens midlife um, or uh, later in life, if it happens at all. It's kind of a miracle because this is kind of leveling up to really being willing to be poured out for God, even if it means getting rid of our comfort. Stage six folks, they just have a constant passion to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That's what they are about. And within all of the different perspectives of the world, all of the different people, they're able to pick up on the longing for God that shows up in each place. Now, stage six does not mean perfection. John the Baptist, Jesus said he was the greatest man, and he had doubts. Mother Teresa, not popular with everyone. Martin Luther King Jr., some people say won a great husband, right? This is not perfection, but you can see that these people have leveled up in a way that they really are willing to be poured out even to the point of death for the love and justice that God has called them to do. We can long for that and it takes God to work that into us. It's a both and here. So now that I've talked about all these stages, I want us to step back for a moment and remember, if you're walking into a church the first time, you're gonna meet people in every single one of these stages. Can you put up that slide? You got it. So what is that gonna feel like? Let's take an example that for many of us hits close to home, maybe one we're still grieving. I had a friend who had a late-term miscarriage and it wasn't her first. So she walks into a Bible study and she says, it hurts so much, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to try again for another baby. Now, if there's stage two people in that group, and they're mostly thinking about fairness, kind of tit-for-tat reciprocity, they might say, oh, don't worry, next time it'll definitely work out, just keep praying. Let's say those folks are in stage three, where they assume the group is gonna be alike. They might say, you know what, that's how I felt at first too, but I'm sure it's at some point, uh, you know, you'll be okay, that's what happened to me. If that person is talking to stage four people, they might be so tired of the trite answers that they might just say, you're right, that pain never ends and no one is honest. It goes forever and ever. No hope, right? Stage five might be able to enter into that pain with that person, but they also, knowing that God can do wild things, would be able to say, you know what? Absolutely, it's okay to feel as you feel right now. God may do something different with you, and he might not, but regardless, he's with you. A stage six person might be actively listening to the Spirit. Maybe the Spirit's saying, go move in that, with that woman and cook all her meals and just take care of her and love on her. Or the Spirit might say, just shut up and say nothing and just be present, right? So if you are a brand new to the faith and you're walking in, you might have very different takeaways from Christians. You might think they are the most loving, amazing people you have ever seen. Or you might think, wow, what a rigid, heartless bunch, depending on the stage. Let's take another example. 
Let's say you're struggling with your faith, maybe because of things that you've been through, maybe because of the way Christians have treated you in the past, maybe because of the atrocities that Christians have committed throughout history, and you walk in and you share your struggles, stage two might be like, oh, don't worry, it'll work out, just keep going. Stage three might feel really threatened by the fact that you're questioning and try to argue you back into believing right on the spot. Stage four might be like, you're right, I don't know if these Jesus followers have anything to offer. Stage five might say, you know what? Yes, let's honor your doubts, but let's also doubt your doubts because we don't always know everything in the moment. I'd encourage you to find some people who could walk alongside you and honor your questions and keep going. Stage six might be able to be profoundly encouraging or they might have something super convicting to say that the Spirit has given them in that moment. So depending on what group you're encountering, you might feel amazing permission to doubt and to wrestle, or you might feel like, oh my gosh, that's not okay, that's threatening. It's so different. Now, as I hear these different stages of faith as a recovering perfectionist, on one hand, it helps me to feel, to make sense of the experiences I've had with Christians. On the other hand, I got some guilt because it really points out the places that I still need to grow up. So how do we deal with ourselves compassionately as we think about this? Part of it is to realize that there are pros and cons to each stage. Stage three can be amazingly beautiful and passionate and watch out for us versus them. Also, just keep putting yourself in places where God can keep working on you and tell you what next step he's called you to. How do we love others best? who are in different stages. Here's my challenges. If you are kind of identifying as stage two or three, try to keep some curiosity. Rather than just believing that you're right and anybody else who's uh, disagreeing is disloyal or not faithful, start wondering, are there experiences that God has given them you haven't had yet? If you're in stage four, I would say, don't be too quick to dismiss all the stage three people. Remember, God can work in that too. And also, find a mentor to walk alongside you as you question and doubt. Stage five, congratulations, you're okay with mystery. Don't rush other people to be where you are. They are on their own journey. God is guiding them at his pace. And also, don't step back in a lazy relativism that says, well, I'm, con- I'm, you know, I'm complicated. Causes are complicated. I don't know what's good. Dig in anyway. Press through to love and justice anyway. Stage six, you're doing great. Come mentor me, <laughs> right? As you guys hear this, this might be helpful to some of you to make sense of experiences that you have had. For others, You might find this to be challenging or concerning. Maybe it's disorienting. Um, Feel free to come ask me questions after if you'd like. Um, And then again, we'll get to hear from different people at different stages as we go. So there'll be some more time to think about this. But for now, I'll pray. God, thank you for the beauty that you have put in every person in this room. Thank you for their unique journey I pray that each of us could listen to you 
and gently follow the next step you're calling us to. We love you. We're so grateful for you. Amen.